0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. British historian
1: and philosopher R.G. Collingwood said that history is for human self-knowledge. And the only clue to what men can do is what man has done. So with an ongoing pandemic and theaters shut down for the foreseeable future, what can history teach us about dealing with such hardships and what to expect going forward? Not all, but most of it, especially in the larger markets like
2: Chicago or New York, the arguments around theaters and the pandemic all had to do with economics, and we're all focused on producers.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Why I'll Never Make It, featuring conversations with fellow artists about the realities of life in the arts, all while challenging the notion of what it means to make it. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and to support the work of this podcast, you can now choose between one-time donations or ongoing monthly giving. Just go to donate.winmepodcast.com. There's a humorous magazine cartoon showing an old professor with a younger student surrounded by books. And the professor says, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Yet those who do study history are doomed to stand by helplessly while everyone else repeats it. Well, today we're going to do what we can to not only study history, but learn from it as well. And who better to learn from than a college theater professor?
2: I'm Charlotte Canning. I'm the Frank C. Irwin Centennial Professor in Drama at the University of Texas at Austin uh, in the Theater and Dance Department. I'm also head of the PhD program there. and the author of four books and am working on three more, although every time I say that it doesn't really sound believable, I mean to me. So um, not great planning in that sentence. And I think the other identity I'm very proud of is I I teach, and I teach both the graduate and undergraduate level.
1: And it was one of those writings that first introduced me to Charlotte. Back in March, just a couple of weeks after the initial shutdown of Broadway and theaters across the U.S., Charlotte wrote an article for American Theater Magazine called Theater and the Last Pandemic. Now, the last actual shutdown of U.S. theaters happened after 9-11, but that was only for a few days, and it actually galvanized artists and elected officials to promote and elevate theater at a time of national crisis. But as we've all come to know, the last large-scale shutdown and pandemic was the Spanish flu back in 1918 and 19, a name itself that came from the mistaken idea that the pandemic originated in that European country. And today's episode is a deep dive into Charlotte's article, expounding upon her findings of the effect that that pandemic 100 years ago had on society and theater, and what it can tell us about today's deadly virus and its impact.
2: When Rob Weiner Kent asked me to do the article,
1: that's the editor-in-chief of American Theater Magazine.
2: It, it, it was actually quite funny. It's a period I've written about quite a bit and done a lot of research in. And so when he first said it, I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll be able to do that. And then I paused and I thought, I cannot think of anything about the flu of of 1918. And I thought, oh, that must, I, I'm tired, I'm frazzled, right? It was, the, he asked me in March when, um, Universities, including my own, were moving online. So I figured, okay, I'm just not, you know, I'll do some research and it'll refresh my memory and we'll be fine. And I did some research and there was nothing.
1: So without any plays or stage work specifically dealing with the 1918 pandemic to reference, Charlotte had to approach the article a different way.
2: The question that I ask my students or I tell my students they always need to answer about their own work is why this, why now? Um, In some ways that's obvious, right, a comparison to 100 years later, but in some ways I also felt like maybe it tells us something about the role of artists uh, to be kind of major interpreters, to help us understand major events, particularly catastrophic ones. So uh, I remember talking with some students maybe a month after 9-11, and they were asking me about art and, you know, does it matter? I don't know if you remember, there was a lot of conversation about the death of irony and all that and comedy. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to them, well, part of me is like waiting for the artists to tell us what it meant, what what it's all means. And I think there was some extraordinary work that came out of that. And I think because this historical moment is so different than the previous, the the 1918 pandemic, that we are going to see some extraordinary work uh, come out of this to help us understand sort of what this pandemic has meant to us and why. Uh, A lot of people are assuming it may also be a major infrastructure restructure of US theater. We'll see, I don't know. Um, I have some doubts as a historian about some of the things that folks are arguing could or will happen. But um, what I think the major difference is that it's going to make a difference this time, that we're going to be talking about it. And I think that's so important.
1: As you did your research, learning more about that 1918 pandemic and how it affected theaters, what struck you as similar to what we're going through
2: now? Well, what's funny is, Living in the state of Texas as I do, uh, Texas was one of the first to argue about reopening. Remember that phrase, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of it was based on the needs of business owners. And it was such a, uh, it was so startling because when I back in March when I had been doing the research for the article, one of the things I noticed was that. It, the, most of the coverage, not all, but most of it, especially in the larger markets like Chicago or LA or New York, the arguments around theaters and the pandemic all had to do with economics. All had to, and we're all focused on producers, and producers saying we can't afford to be closed. Also. Um, the decisions that were made about which businesses to close were much more haphazard. So the theater owners did have some logic on their side. They're like, why is this way of gathering? Okay. But our way isn't. Right. Um, uh, So it just was so eerie to hear that same argument and know that even though now we know far more scientifically about infection, about, you know, all the, the sort of the medicine, the health, the science of, of these uh, viruses, the arguments didn't seem to have changed very much in 100 years.
1: Because there was still an argument about to mask or not to mask and social distancing, mm-hmm. because it, it was interesting, I, I was reading that theaters back then largely remained open but it was also partly due to giving them updates about the pandemic or reminding them about health protocols or things to do. So it was as much news as it was entertainment to keep those theaters open.
2: It was also very varied, uh, not unlike today, but maybe even more so that it was very locally dependent. Um, So some municipalities did close their theaters um, uh, wholesale. Um, there's one, I wish I could remember which city it was, but there was this one great article that even had pictures of, um, they had announced that the next day the theaters would close. And so people flocked to see shows before the theaters closed, which of course is exactly what you shouldn't do, is flock into large groups. And in some places they kept them open. And as you said, it was part of larger communication, but in many places they didn't. Um, and in some of the very small markets, like I remember this one article from the Indianapolis Daily Paper, there was this, it was this very sweet article about worrying about their local actors and, you know, how were they getting on, you know, how were they making money, you know, were they okay and so on. So there was some awareness that that sort of ordinary people or or lower wage earners were uh, adversely affected by the shutdowns. But most, like I said, most of the coverage focused on producers and theater owners.
1: Yeah. And I would say that when it comes to, the performance space now, a lot of it centers around maybe TV and film production and, you know, which studios are opening or not opening or, you know, our, your favorite show is going to be postponed until, you know, they can get back. But it doesn't seem like that theater itself is is as widely reported or updated as far as its status. And and so what was theater more of a central element of society back then as opposed to now?
2: It was. I mean, even now, though, I think there's a lot of, interest in conversation about Broadway. I think both because musicals are always popular nationally, you know, even small communities will put on musicals, high schools and so on, as well as national touring circuits, right? So I think there's that awareness. And then again, in cities where there are theaters, I think there's awareness, right? Right. So if you have a large regional theater or even a mid-sized one, you're probably aware or you've seen articles in your local papers. But I, I do think that that there was quite a bit of interest that was maybe much more do- predominant than, than now, in part because this is before, you know, movies were really the industry that they would become within a few years. And, you know, there was radio, but again, it, the 1920s is when radio really took off. So you're also talking about uh, a culture where the vast majority of entertainment is live performance, whether you're going to an opera or the legitimate theater to see whatever, Shakespeare or you know, some melodrama, or you're going to vaudeville. So with, I mean, I, I, one way to imagine it would be to think of our current, you know, especially when we were in lockdown, And think about it, if you didn't have a TV, the internet, or maybe even a radio, right that would have been a very, very different experience. Um, And so I think the loss of live entertainment was much more of much greater magnitude and impact than it certainly is now. I mean, I think it's much more, like I said, much more comparable if you could imagine not being able to stream uh, Netflix for six hours on your couch and get the embarrassing (laughs) message asking you if you're still
1: are you still there? <laughs> yeah. Now, what do you see in your studying of then and now as the the lessons that
0: we could learn from that time period?
2: Because of a lot of the work done in the mid-century, so had not yet happened, the kind of awareness that in the 60s, 1965, with the establishment of the National Endowment for the Arts, the arts um, became seen as a kind of national enterprise um, and the sense that that it was something knitting it together across the country. In 1918, I don't think that same understanding existed. I mean, other than some of the syndicates, they're not national organizations, right? Like now we think of things like TCG, Theater Communications Group, um, or various things like uh, Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas, uh, you know, those kinds of organizations. None of that kind of fabric existed. So it was also seen as a much more local and specific um, enterprise than we see it now. So I, I think that that's a huge difference. So I, I I don't mean this in the sense that people are callous, but I don't know that the people in Indianapolis were really thinking about actors in Seattle. Right. Now, of course, all those groups have their own organizations. Unions are much stronger and more prevalent and those kinds of things. So I think that there's much more of a national view than would have been had in 1918.
1: At the beginning of the 20th century, producers were really setting their own work conditions and pay scale. There was no compensation for rehearsals or holiday pay, and rehearsal time was unlimited. So in 1913, a group of actors in New York City drafted a constitution, elected a president, and formed the Actors' Equity Association. In response to this, theater managers and producers formed their own coalition. And a year later, Equity developed a standard contract with a list of rules and demands for the managers to adhere to. And although that standard contract was agreed to in 1917, hardly any of the managers or producers adhered to it. And they were constantly violating the contract, refusing to acknowledge Equity as a legitimate organization. So in 1919, Equity called the first strike in the history of American theater, demanding recognition to both represent and bargain for stage performers. That strike lasted 30 days and closed a total of 37 plays, while also preventing the opening of 16 others. In the end, Equity and the producers signed a five-year contract that forced managers to pay actors for overtime and rehearsals as well as travel and costumes. And because of the strike, Equity's membership had grown from a couple of thousand before the strike to more than 14,000 members. That strike, in essence, changed the very definition of labor. You see, previously, actors weren't seen as workers, but rather as artists, and many saw themselves as above mere laborers. But once actors realized that a union was necessary and then created Actors' Equity Association, then their successful strike broke down a perceived class barrier between actors and industrial workers. Acting was now seen as a trade and part of the greater labor movement.
2: One of the things it did, of course, was alleviate the terrible conditions under which the rank and file of theater workers um, existed. I mean, you know, I don't know that anyone would argue for uh, professional theater right now or any, you know, recently as the kind of model industry, but it, the, if you were to compare it with a hundred or a hundred plus years ago, it's staggeringly better. Um, you know, just as an example, if you, you know, actors weren't paid for rehearsals, uh, mm. if you were in a touring show and you were, you know, say you were based in New York, but your tour took you out to you know, Toledo and your producer ran out of money, the producer could just leave you there. You might be sitting in Toledo with no money, no way to get back to your home in New York um, and so on. And this was very, very common practice. Wow! So these were the kinds of conditions that brought people to organize. It also brings a kind of homogeneity of experience, right? So if you're an actor working under an equity contract, in San Diego and an actor working in an equity contract in Atlanta, the boilerplate is the same, right? In terms of maybe breaks or those kinds of things. So I think it did help create the idea of it as a national industry um, in ways that before it would just have been seen as something local. um, That's really, really important in terms of positioning theater as a kind of national and nationally important enterprise.
1: So when it comes to that time period of of 1918 and then coming out of of that pandemic, theaters are are starting to get back to normal. Did theater writing, did, did the types of shows, did anything like that change because of the pandemic?
2: You know, that was, I mean, that was the primary question I started my research with. I assumed, right, that even though I couldn't think of any shows about Uh, the influenza epidemic that didn't mean there weren't any and I assumed that as I researched I was going to find some cool plays and I even had this very lofty idea like oh you know maybe in the fall I can use them in teaching because then you know we'll make this connection and what I found was there weren't any Hmm. none zero Um, the only major artist who lived through it and who wrote a substantial and important piece of art about it was Catherine Ann Porter and her novella, Pale Horse, Pale Rider.
1: Earlier this year, just as the pandemic was gaining steam, but before the actual theater shutdown, Slate, an online digital magazine, had an article talking about people buying up copies of books all about plagues and dark times as sort of a counterintuitive comfort in dealing with the pandemic, and one of the books recommended was Catherine Ann Porter's Pale Horse, Pale Rider. This short novel was actually published in 1939, and it tells the story of two lovers caught up in the gears of both a world war and a deadly virus. It is somewhat autobiographical, You see, during the 1918 pandemic, Porter herself was 28 years old and working for the Rocky Mountain News in Denver. She was dating a young soldier at the time who was about to be deployed overseas. But when she caught the virus, the young soldier took care of her at her boarding house. Eventually, her editor pulled a few strings to get her into the hospital. But that hospital was so overcrowded, Porter was left on a gurney in the hallway for nine days, running a fever of 105. When she finally recovered though, she discovered that her soldier had died of the flu.
2: And if you think of the incredibly important literary figures who would have been old enough, well old enough to experience it and remember it, like everyone from Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway, Zora Neale Hurston, I mean, just the number of people who would later become some of the most important artists in the U.S. in the 20th century, and yet are absolutely silent about the pandemic. Nobody wrote about it. Nobody, um, actually, historically. So, if you cast your net much further back, there aren't a lot of pandemic or plague type works of literature. I mean, yes, there's Decameron, uh, Boccaccio. There, uh, Camus wrote the plague, but you know. If you you know the, I, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a period of time, I guess it was April, because it would have been around Shakespeare's birthday, that everybody pointed out that I think it was Lear. One of his major works was written during one of the periodic shutdowns.
1: Actually, much of Shakespeare's life and writings were affected by illness and pandemics. Just a few months after his birth in 1564, a plague began in his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon. Between 1582 and 1610, there were five outbreaks of plague. One of those, in 1596, took the life of his son, Hamnet, at the age of 11. A few years later, his play Hamlet was an exploration of fathers and sons, death and grief. Yet, even though epidemic disease was clearly present in Shakespeare's life, in his writings it was more of a... Steady, low-level undertone showing up in speeches rather than overarching subject matter. King Lear talks about his corrupted blood, and Cariolanus shouts, All the contagion of the south light upon you, you shames of Rome. But the most famous comes from Romeo and Juliet, when Mercutio calls down, A plague on both your houses. Interestingly enough, later on in the play, a quarantine is actually the reason for Romeo not receiving word that Juliet is only sleeping, thus leading to the tragic circumstances of both of their suicides.
2: So I just think it's 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 kind of fascinating how we don't have a huge plague literature, uh, especially not in the theater. Yes, there's one-offs, but a lot of them aren't necessarily even written during the time of a pandemic, or in response to the author's own experience of a pandemic,
1: and I think we see that similarly today. More contemporary example: nine eleven. There really isn't a lot of plays or theater done about nine eleven. There's the adjacent works like Come From Away, which is which is again removed from it. It's it's in another country even, but there's nothing dealing with. Let's do a play about New York on nine eleven. There there haven't really been those kind of things
2: certainly in the larger commercial theater, you don't see it, but I think a lot of individual artists did some beautiful solo work. I think there were much smaller pieces that were also more local in response to local experiences of it. Um, I also think a lot of the work that's since come out that looks at things like the carceral state or the surveillance state, We can, I think, really sort of pinpoint 9-11 as a key moment when we started being aware of that. I also think that you could, if you wanted to, you could count in a lot of the war literature, like novels, like uh, the things they carried and stuff in that. Because, of course, we've been at war since 9-11, right, in the Middle East. That is, in some ways, the way we might measure a kind of artistic response to 9-11.
1: And and you had mentioned that that art itself kind of lets us know, you know, ways to think about it or ways to address it. And like with 2020, you know, a lot of people have said, it's just it's just a crap year. I can't wait for it to be over. It's like, what else can go wrong? But I mean, but the three big events, obviously coronavirus, the racial tensions, and with the presidential election and all the politics that come with that... I, I guess I'm asking you to kind of do a little future casting here, but, but what do you see as art as as pointing out? I mean, I mean, there's so many places to go as far as what 2020 could mean.
2: Sure. Well, I feel like I have a huge advantage over most people when it comes to future casting and when it comes to being optimistic, because I teach, I teach young artists, emerging artists, and I'm so excited about the thinking that the the students I get to work with are doing. Um, I did publish a piece um, this summer about the thesis projects the undergraduate honor students in the Department of Theater of Dance are doing and sort of how their unwillingness to give up on the arts, their their absolute determination to keep, uh, keep fighting the good fight through their work in the arts for their communities, for themselves, um, for their families, uh, for the arts itself is just staggeringly inspiring.
1: That article Charlotte mentions came out in July and is called Finding Hope in Theater That Hasn't Happened Yet, How to Survive a Global Pandemic. In it, she talks about her experience teaching the Bachelor of Arts Honors Junior Seminar every spring. This is where students plan their senior year thesis project. As Charlotte puts it, emerging student artists are charting a way forward for themselves and their peers being among the first generation who will never know a professional life without COVID-19. These students are certainly aware that the professional artistic world that they want to join has a high degree of uncertainty, and yet they are still focused on making the world a better place. Charlotte's students are taking on such subjects as stage representation of Mexican-American motherhood, bilingual Spanish-English speakers in mainstream media, and the connections between the representation of animals and extinction.
2: So I feel like that's, in a way, my secret weapon is I get to see this work before other people see it and know that it's coming and know that it's fabulous. Um, One of the graduate students in the program I run, who is also a director as well as a scholar, Um, was supposed to direct a piece for us in our season, in the department season. And he actually worked, uh, collaborated with uh, other students and they're not going to do the piece that was regularly scheduled and they're going to do a devised piece interviewing folks about the pandemic and creating a a sort of documentary theater piece. So Mm -hmm. I think also we're going to start to see how the, the younger generations, those whose lives professional lives are emerging and they're emerging into this vast unknown, um, speaking back to how what their experiences have been and how they understand what's happening to them. Um, I, I probably, in my lifetime, this is probably the most significant civil rights and human rights movement. And it's just thrilling. And I, I again, I get to work with students who are thinking of new ways all the time to address these problems. Um, And and so for me, it's I I feel like I like I said, I get this little um, peek into the future and that what I see is so inspiring. And
1: comparing the civil rights of the 60s to now. What changed as far as theater writing, theater casting, the, the the shape and form of theater and what it was doing in the 60s? And do you see a same impetus that could start this year?
2: I think there very well could be because of course the 60s, one of the huge changes, right, is we see these extraordinary artists emerging from identity-based work, from protest work, um, uh, just, you know, amazing things like El Teatro Campesino and Luis Valdez, Um all the many and varied black theaters uh, that are that are producing work that we that have become canonical that they're so brilliant, um, uh, feminist theater I- I emerges at the end of the 60s, early 1970s, and certainly those works collectively completely transform um, theater and the way we think about it. Um, so I think that. W- there are lots of promising signs that we're on the cusp of a similar reinvention of theater. Um, just in the past couple of years, if you look at the number of executive or leadership positions that are being filled by BIPOC folks, it is really encouraging. Seeing slave play on Broadway, I mean, I just think that there are certain uh, there are signs that that you know maybe some of the shifts will be more permanent. Um, and that hopefully what we're seeing isn't going to be one-off or, or token, but actual ongoing and enduring changes. And I think a lot of that can be credited to, to grassroots stuff, right? I mean, it's the the stuff at the top often makes the news, but that, that stuff at the top is often the result of years and years of hard work by, you know, ordinary folks. So I think of... Um, the critic Jose Solis and not just through his writing, through his criticism, but also through the mentoring project he's doing with young BIPOC critics uh, who are emerging on the scene um, to support, to help them have ways to support and develop their work. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that pays off long-term in terms of transforming um, our, our world. You know, it's all very nice and well to paint Black Lives Matter on the street But it's really the the hard grinding labor of transformation, which of course is something theater knows a lot about, transformation, that is gonna make the, the real changes.
1: And when it comes to the theater that you've studied throughout history, do you find a theme of theater and art reflecting back what's going on and therefore giving people a way to look at it differently? Or do you see it more looking forward as this is where we need to go, come with us, let's do this?
2: It's hard to answer in part because my own work as a historian has been much more interested in the work that's saying, here's where we are. Because I'm, I'm saying like, so how did people think about themselves at the time? How did they understand themselves? Um, so, you know, I think some of the best theater that we often think of as um, enduring or that we are inspired by actually was in some ways very topical. Um, you know, uh, Shakespeare had to write his history plays in certain ways so that the Tudors came out on top. So what we get are are seeing some of the subtle ways he's commenting on um, kings and rulers and and governments and so on. Um, and, And so I think that that's always been what's fascinated me as a historian about theater is that there's Almost, and I know I'm going to get a lot of blowback from fellow historians in other fields, but there is almost no better way to figure out a kind of day-to-day circulation of ideas than to look at the theater.
1: The news is certainly one way to, to encapsulate a, a day, a week, a month, but theater is yet another way because it tends to be removed from that moment and now it can comment on it. It can expound upon it. It can take it in a different direction or rewrite that story if it even wants to. So, so art really has a way of, of retelling a story in another way.
2: Um, And that's also much more of a 20th and 21st century view of art, because remember, the lag time between writing a play and producing it could often be only days um, in the past, right? So you could do plays almost as the news, as newsreels. Um, And a lot of times, um, because theater was also so elastic and so responsive to its moment, uh, you know, people might work things in. Uh, that are clearly comments on current situations or emphasize certain lines and so on and so forth. So I think that that one of the things that theater has, or theater can tell us about a moment, right, is because it's live, even if the play itself doesn't necessarily speak to a given moment, the actors are going to be. Um, And so I think that that's the other thing is you looking for clues of how those performances went can tell you a lot um, about um, how people were thinking and responding to a given moment. Uh, You know, I think that's one of the value of doing historical work on vaudeville is, is when we start seeing what kinds of acts were popular, we can say a lot about what people were thinking because the bookers were booking very much in response to audience, how receptive audiences were. And if you didn't get, if you weren't popular, you weren't coming back. So I think there's things like that that could tell us a lot too about even almost day-to-day thinking. And
1: and it's interesting because I've, I've done some research on on other musical acts, you know, from Sammy Davis Jr. Nat King Cole, that type of thing, and how immensely popular, and you can go back to the 20s and 30s, and uh, people of color were immensely popular on stage, and, and people went to go see them. However, behind the scenes, you know, they couldn't go to the same bathroom. Like Sammy Davis Jr. would go to Vegas, but he'd have to stay miles out of town, whereas the white performers could be in the hotel, D- different things like that, where... Visually, it looked like there was a lot of diversity, so to speak, mm-hmm. on stage and on screen, but yet behind the scenes, there was, was a lot more turmoil going yeah. on.
2: Well, white America has always had a very high tolerance for diversity and spectacle, uh, performed spectacle that they don't have for diversity in their own lived lives. Mm. Years and years ago, Uda Hagen came to UT to give a talk. It was an extraordinary experience. And um, I was part of a small group of faculty chatting with her afterwards. And my colleague, Oscar Brockett, who many people know because of his, his theater history textbook, told her that he had seen her in Othello with Paul Robeson, which staggered her. I don't think she had heard that in many years. And she told us the most amazing story that when they were in Boston, they were in the same hotel, even on the same floor, and they were coming down uh, in the uh, elevator to the lobby and the doors opened at some floor above the lobby. And there was a man standing there, right? Obviously he had pressed the button. He saw the two of them. He spat on the floor in the elevator and wouldn't get on the elevator. So even, even getting into those hotels, right? There's still significant barriers in how you're treated and how you're seen. So, I mean, I think we don't actually learn a whole lot about um, or, or rather we, we we, are, we would be wise not to make assumptions about diversity based on, on what's on stage. Um, because of course, as you're pointing out, the performers are certainly not experiencing anything like equality, right. If they have to drive out of town. Um, and, um, if you then look at even more importantly, the power structure is all white. So who are the producers, the bookers, the managers, the PR people, the, the investors, right. The, Historically, they're predominantly, predominantly white. So I think that that's the other thing, is that um, one of the things that theater historians can do or historians of the arts do, right, is we know to just, you know, like detectives, like follow the money, right? Who has the money, who's paying, and who's making those decisions based on the money. And of course, throughout US history, that has largely been a white uh, power base that's done that.
1: And certainly there's there's been a reckoning of theater pieces themselves, uh, from uh, showboat, poor game best, you know, old older pieces like that, all the way through even Hamilton has its detractors because of mm-hmm. the, the the racial elements or the historical perspectives that 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 it showcases. And so as a historian, what is your view on taking a piece for when it was written in that time, keeping true to that, or do we need to start? changing and altering and updating pieces so that it fits what we want to see now.
2: Uh, well, let's put it this way. Theater happens in the present, right? So if you put a play on now, no matter what it, you want to say, you know, when it was written or whatever, you're putting it on now. It's happening now in front of us. So the artists and involved are responsible for what the play is saying and doing. I, I happen to be very open to the idea of taking plays and doing stuff with them, um, especially older works, because they're still going to be there, right? I mean, maybe it's, again, my luxury as a professor in that you can do what you want with whatever Shakespeare, but I can still teach Hamlet the way it appears in a folio or a quarto, right? There's nothing that inhibits me from doing that just because somebody has decided to do Hamlet but only say the verbs out loud or whatever. That would be actually kind of interesting, (laughs) I think. But so I just feel like that's, you know... Uh, you know, and, and I'm not talking about um, things like c- copyright or intellectual property rights, and 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 current play, you know, living authors writing places currently, but older works. I, it seems to me, in order to keep them sort of timely, is to have the freedom to make them of the moment, um, to think through. Um, w- w- what, what is it, what is it saying? What is it doing? Why are we, why are we doing this? Again, as I said earlier, you know, all my students, when they're proposing projects, I, they have to tell me why this, why now. So if you want to do some, you know, horrific racist play, you can't just say, Oh, well it's because it was written in 1915. So that's why it's racist. But so if I do it, it doesn't count. Of course it counts. Of course, because you're doing it now in front of us. So I do think, people should be held accountable for the work that they put on stage. Um, It's a choice, so why are you choosing to do this play? For example, I have yet to see a production of uh, Merchant of Venice that I haven't sort of recoiled in horror from. I, I don't, I don't, I haven't yet, not yet seen the solution to doing that play, especially post-Holocaust. I saw a production years and years and years ago at the Globe in London, where they also went back to 19th century staging conventions. And when Shylock walked on, he had the long nose and the red beard, which was the anti-Semitic tropes that populated the European stages and American stages in the 19th century, and that that meant a Jew in all of the negative anti-Semitic ways. So to see that, walk on stage in 20th century London was just shocking to me. And, I, and because they were all trying to, or at least at the time, um, were trying to do this thing of make it, you know, attend the theater like you're in Elizabethan England. They encourage audiences to be very vocal. And so I watched a huge number of school children. The day I went, well, there was several school groups, boo Shylock when he walked on and that they had structured it so that he is this villain. Now, of course the play makes him a villain, but I thought, how are you gonna make sure that those kids are differentiating between this individual character who is not making great choices versus Jewish character who they are now booing and who is now tricked out in some of the most anti-Semitic makeup you can imagine. I I still think of that with horror. So I I think when we choose those plays, we have to be held accountable for how we're doing them and why we're doing them, because otherwise we're simply uh, continuing those traditions.
1: In the 1998 book, Shakespeare and the Invention of the Human, author and literary critic Harold Bloom says, one would have to be blind, deaf and dumb not to recognize that Shakespeare's grand equivocal comedy, The Merchant of Venice, is nevertheless a profoundly anti-Semitic work. The fact that this play was a favorite of Nazi Germany certainly lends credence to the charge of anti-Semitism. Between 1933 and 1939, there were more than 50 productions performed in Nazi Germany. However, there are those who defend Merchant of Venice, like Michelle Oshereau, professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and a resident dramaturg of the Folger Theater in Washington, D.C. She points to Shakespeare's sympathetic treatment of Shylock and his mockery of the Christian characters. She surmises that contemporary audiences would only read Shylock sympathetically because reading him any other way in light of the Holocaust would reflect poorly on the reader. Oshiro is also convinced that it's no accident that the Jewish character is given the most humanizing speech in the play. Hath not a Jew eyes? Hath not a Jew hands? If you prick us, do we not bleed? With these questions, Oshiro says there's a shift in the story and also within the audience. Playwright Aaron Posner wrote an adaptation of Merchant of Venice called District Merchants and found himself struggling to come to terms with the text as well. Shakespeare is not interested in having people be consistent, says Posner. And so it is ultimately up to the theaters, the directors, producers, the adapters of Shakespeare's work as far as what themes and messages come across to an audience. Shakespeare in the Park here in New York. They often do all-female productions, like *A Taming of the Shrew*, which was brilliant, or or an all-black cast that really it really changes the dynamic and the structure of the show without really changing the words or the lines.
2: Yeah, it's so much. It's so all about seeing theater as happening in the present, right? And seeing the kinds of meanings that contemporary audiences are going to derive from it. I mean, I don't know if you remember in 2016 when they did Julius Caesar in the park and there was a huge uproar um, of the ways in which people were reading it as Trump. And um, I was on, I did some podcast about that because um, there were so many people who felt that was either disrespectful in a good way or disrespectful in a bad way or not disrespectful enough. Um And I was just struck by what people were pulling what audience members were pulling out to make their arguments, so for example, some of them were only going on the visual, how the characters were costumed and their physicality um, In fact, what got lost in the play was what happens to Julius Caesar at the end um and a lot of people were saying that it was pro trump and and it was giving him a kind of majesty that he didn't deserve and I thought, do you know the end of Julius Caesar? <laughs> not going to go well. Just, just, just reminding you all. So, you know, I just, I I feel like the minute you forget that theater happens in the present, you're going to get in trouble. You know, I mean, a lot of the Hamilton critiques were totally on the money. If you are going to have catchphrases or, or PR lines like America then as portrayed by America now or something and not confront the issue of slavery you know I don't even know it just seems to me that that was a complication that they probably should have known was coming and maybe they did and they just it wasn't um a primary concern and and where you know Lin-Manuel Miranda himself said it's all valid like he's not he's not saying how dare you critique my work of genius right he's he's very open to the critiques and the conversations and I think that's the other part of it right is is the artists who aren't open to that that's where some of the problems happen as well. If you want to put out your understanding of something, but you don't want to engage about it, right. um, I think then does that mean you don't believe in what you're doing?
1: Do writers need to think about how their work will be seen in the future or do they still need to write it for now and just realize, okay, in 30 years, if this or that has changed, then those producers will change it. If, if they need to, or make it of the times.
2: I mean, I, I think both from studying artists, but also, again, being at the University of Texas and getting to work alongside a lot of world-class artists. I think what I've seen is it's less about them writing for now or for later than writing something that seems so unassailably true and mm. so breathtaking to them or something that, that, that they just, they want to say out loud. Um, whether it 's through characters saying it or themselves, but that that I think the reasons why certain works stay with us or why we say they're brilliant or we you know attach those all these adjectives to them is because those artists really got at something, um, asked some really really big, enduring questions, and that answered them in a way so thoughtfully and so viscerally that we keep responding to the answers. So for example, just go back to Julius Caesar again. I mean, Julius Caesar was not a story that was contemporary to Shakespeare. Um, And of course the Shakespeare in the park, Shakespeare is hundreds of years distant from us, but we're still asking questions and struggling with notions of power right? Notions of personal relationships within power. Um, We're struggling with how, does power change people or does it not? Um, How do we, how do you critique power? How do you, I mean those are such important questions that we can go to a production of Julius Caesar and take away something of real meaning and, and help. So I think that that's, those are the works that tend to stay with us, because those questions are ones we all grapple with all the time.
1: And so, like, how do you think theater will come out of this era, then, of, of COVID? You know, I, I mean, obviously, Broadway and theater itself, they, they survived 1918, but but was something lost then? Will, Will something be lost now?
2: The comparison is difficult to make because... It was the war that had already disrupted theater to some extent, right? Because people, men were drafted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and theater was already on the cusp of a huge transformation of uh, the little theater movement had just started. That's what's gonna become uh, things like the regional theater movement. Um, it's gonna help account for a huge growth in theater and higher education and community theater. Um, The Federal Theater Project right, is in some ways a a large scale realization of the little theater movement. So theater was already in this kind of moment of huge transformation. I don't, I mean, of course theater is always in a moment of transformation, but (laughs) I don't know that this moment is particularly comparable because of that. Now, what I do think is, is interesting is that there's so much conversation about how can we use this moment to bring about changes that are necessary or desirable. Um, I I did read there was a recent article I think the New York Times, where they had several people speak to like what do you think is going to happen. To be honest, I didn't, especially as a historian, I didn't find many of the arguments persuasive. Theaters always wanted more money. We've always wanted to pay people better. Right. Um, I think I didn't see anything in terms of real policy thinking um, or anything that is transformative as things like say Creative Capital was several years ago when they first started funding and, and mentoring artists. So, I, I, but I do think it, it's possible. Um, but I think part of what's making it difficult is we don't have a stable national political scene. So it's almost impossible to think about those kinds of large scale changes because we don't know from day to day if the pandemic is gonna start roaring out of control again. I mean, it's still out of control in some parts of the US. Um, We don't know if that's gonna continue. masks and social distancing remain controversial, I think that we need a little bit more stability before we're gonna be able to do those kinds of massive changes. But I think what's the most promising is how many people are talking very openly and urgently about a need to do things differently. A lot of the changes that would happen in theater in the 20s and 30s came from much earlier, much longer sustained conversations on how and what to do. So the changes usually follow conversation. So the fact that the conversation is so robust and energetic, I think is a terrific sign.
1: From the fall of 1918 to the summer of 1919, that pandemic greatly affected the lives of artists and the country as a whole. In just 10 months, 670,000 people died in the US worldwide fatalities were between 50 and 100 million. Thankfully, we have not reached those levels at this point, and I certainly pray we never do. But from all appearances, the state of theater and its future seem to be much more precarious now than it was back then. At the end of her article in American Theater Magazine, Charlotte says, There seems little chance that today's theater artist will forget the trauma of this time or fail to let it influence their work as the writers of 100 years ago seem to have. The art being created now and in the future after the threat of COVID-19 infection subsides is likely to offer us a collective opportunity to remember this uncertainty and the fears of the moment, to understand why things unfold the way that they did, and to help us keep them from ever happening again. I'd like to give a big thank you to Charlotte Canning for joining us today and to you for being a part of our conversation. And actually, Charlotte and I continue to talk about her work and how the pandemic has affected her teaching and student life at the University of Texas at Austin. For those wanting to hear more of my conversation with Charlotte, just go to donate.winmepodcast.com. Anyone giving a one-time or monthly donation will be able to access part two of this episode. Your donation goes toward the continued work of this podcast to bring you artists and creatives like this each week, and special access to conversations like these are my way of saying thank you.
2: And also, thank you for, for this, for inviting me, um, just for a lot of reasons. Like, this is stuff I care about, I love to talk about, yeah. but also I'm on the university's executive uh, COVID planning committee, and we meet every day. And so, every day I end my day with talking about COVID. So, this is, and I'm actually what I'm going to do in 15 minutes. But so, this yeah. is like at least I will had a really nice zoom today that is not about you know how many students and do we have a cluster and all that
1: right and six feet and all that yeah (laughs) well i'm your host patrick oliver jones let's get together next week as we talk more about why i'll never make it